they weren't just there to be kind of admired. They were there to be communed with. And I think uh, when I went out into the broader world, I gradually discovered that that's not how people generally tend to see it at all. I heard a lot of like, you know, this stuff is outdated. It doesn't matter anymore. These authors were superstitious. They were goat herders. I mean, you name it. And then you kind of move from there into the more severe criticisms like, the West as a concept is inherently racist. Western canon is a bad word, you know, or a bad phrase. Um, there's something kind of like colonialist about it. And none of these things struck me as remotely true. And the more I kind of dug into this stuff and the further I went in my education, the more untrue that narrative seemed. It, it became more and more clear that in these great works, especially, you know, it's the philosophy of the ancient Greeks that really drove my, my first love. But, uh, but more broadly, you know, I think of the West as the inheritance of Athens and Jerusalem, these two great pillars of civilization. And everywhere in that storehouse, I found saner, clearer, and more humane answers to the big questions than I was getting in the news. And not only that, but so I thought- move, So let's, yeah. move, let's move on to those big questions. Yeah. Uh, your book is subtitled Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. What are the five crises? <laughs> they are, I'll list them off and then I'll talk a little bit about them. The first is the crisis of reality. Is there anything true or false? Absolutely. Or does uh, is there nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so? The crisis of the body, what are we supposed to do about living in this world of change and decay? Can we transcend our physical form or is there something inherent to it in our humanity? Um, the crisis of meaning, what's the point of it all? And has science sort of outstripped or replaced these uh, classical answers to big questions. Then finally, you know, if, if science hasn't furnished an exhaustive account of the world, is it possible still to believe in something supernatural in God and a higher power? Uh, that's the crisis of religion. Then, you know, at a more political level, this is all very nice to talk about, but what are we going to do about it? That's the crisis of regime. Is America doomed? How do we, you know, do this country together? And throughout, one of the things I emphasize is you know, the word crisis is a very buzzy term now. And when you say is Western civilization in crisis, I think people most immediately think like, you know, the supply chain crisis or the COVID crisis or these kind of moment to moment news stories that are, you know, they're very bad and serious. No question about that. But there's a technical definition of the term crisis that I use in the book, which is from this Greek word, krino, I judge. Um, a crisis is a decision point. It's a fundamental conflict between two irreconcilable ways of looking at the world. World. And my point here is that, you know, it, it, obviously you're not going to open Aristotle and find a disquisition on artificial intelligence or video games or the modern supply chain, but you are going to find profound engagement with those fundamental level questions that lead to the real crisis, the real question, you know, is it this or that? Is there absolute truth or is it all just relativism? Those sorts of things, which is why the book. Yeah, I was, I was going to, to ask about that because you, you pretty persuasively argue that you know, all those five questions, those five decision points have all been argued yep. over for thousands of years, literally thousands of years. Um, you know, why is it so important yeah. that we um, engage with... There's kind of two ways of looking at this. And one is that we've kind of left these fundamental questions in the dust. Everything is changing so rapidly and so entirely, especially technologically. You know, digital tech, I think, has reoriented us in 
really profound and radical ways. Uh, the way that we think about one another, the way that we think about our role in the universe and the construction of the universe. Um, and just the kind of news stories that we deal with all feel kind of unprecedented. They're coming out of nowhere. Nothing like this has ever happened before. There's never been this, you know, insane uptick in gender dysphoria, for instance. So one kind of approach to this would just say, okay, these questions have been around forever. We're actually dealing with new questions. Um, my argument in the book is that the opposite is actually true, that when seismic technological shifts, scientific changes, um, things like, for instance, the inventing of the printing press or in our era, the inventing of the invention of the internet. Um, when those kinds of things occur, they disorient us precisely because they force us to reconfront basic fundamental questions. And even though the way our future looks is going to be different in its particulars than the past, because it always is, um, it becomes more urgent and not less to refer to the wisdom of the past when you're up against these sorts of uh, first level questions. And so that's why, you know, now in the digital age, at this particular moment, we do need the canon. Sarah, do you have any questions for Spencer? I do. I have several, but I'm going to keep it down to two. Okay. I'm ready. Because <laughs> I could keep you here all day if yep. I just let myself go. Oh. Uh, I'm glad you. Okay. So I need to give you full disclosure. We got one review copy. I have yet to read the book. So what I did, my, Mike read the book, wrote a great review. I don't know if it's been published on our site yet. I used his review as a place to start and to listen to several of your interviews. Emily Jashinsky's interview with you is fantastic. Oh, she's so, so great. Good. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, such a smarty, smart, smarty pants girl. She's great. Um, and that was an excellent um, interview. So I pulled some of my questions from that. And I will say after hearing that interview, I immediately bought the book. I'm hey. very much looking forward oh, to reading you, it. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so I'm glad you brought up uh, like the sort of pre-Gutenberg, you know, how the printing press and the Bible got out there and the magnification of certain ideas um, and, and how that relates to modern technology. One question I have for you that um, I think is something I think about a lot, so this is actually kind of a personal question, mm. is um, you, you see it happen on Twitter, and that's how I'm relating it to sort of this, this internet, um, you know, uh, the extreme sort of dispersion of ideas, right, on the internet, yep. um, reaching more people than, than things reach more people than they ever have. People freak out about certain things on, on Twitter, right? Yeah. They freak out. And I'm often like, are we overreacting to that maybe a little bit? The most recent one is the uh, sort of changing of Roald Dahl's uh, works, right? M making them more palatable for certain tastes, um, which I think speaks to this idea of Western civilization as well. Mm. So I'm wondering with those things in mind and your discussion of um, technology, um, and these are the same questions, that we've always been asking are these, you know, this is kind of dispersion of ideology, good, bad, is it going to change us? Are we freaking out about things like Roald Dahl censorship or changing? Is that fundamentally going to matter when it comes to whether or not the West can carry us through? I mean, is that stuff that we need to be really worried about? Oh, yeah. Okay. This is a great question. And it's especially great because I think I personally popped off on Twitter about the Roald Dahl situation <laughs> and then subsequently <laughs> subsequently wondered whether I was overreacting. And so we yes, all, I think... I do the same thing right, all the time. Right. Everybody everybody does this, right? Everybody has these knee jerk yeah. and, and social media encourages it. And those of us who are mm -hmm. sort of terminally online, you know, are extra mm -hmm. tempted to this, which is one reason, by the way, why I personally have developed some really stringent like just personal practices about this, which I also kind of advocate in the book is just 
you know, it's not that it's not that self-control and discipline can fix all of our problems on this score, but it sure would be a start. And a lot of times I think we kind of throw up our hands uh, and just say, well, Twitter has taken over my brain and it's broken now. But that's that's not the case. I mean, we do have the ability to self-reflect in this way. I suspect that a lot of the time what we're overreacting to is it's not that the problem isn't real. It's that we're overreacting to the individual news cycle story when what's really going on is something deeper and more profound. So the Roald Dahl thing, you know, is it a matter of apocalyptic consequence? What happens to future editions of Roald Dahl's books? Um, you could make an argument that it isn't. But on the other hand, you could say this is a symptom of the reality crisis. This is when people that are not, you know, really well equipped to uh, to approach the truth or people who actually are hostile to the truth for one reason or another, in this case for political reasons, um, are given power to determine what Roald Dahl's corpus is. Um, and Roald Dahl is not allowed to say what Roald Dahl wrote. Uh, we are not allowed to evaluate what Roald Dahl wrote in honest terms. We are being offered a product that has been bottlerized by people with other with something else on the agenda having to do with their own power and politics, right? Um, and this was exactly the issue that Milton came up against and and spoke about in or wrote about in his Areopagitica. This was, you know, when the Puritan Parliament began to, you know, monkey with the press. Milton said exactly this. He said, you are going to hand over these texts to people whose interests are are not you know, are not the truth, whose interests are politically motivated, and people who aren't well equipped to make these kinds of judgments. I mean, do you think the government is going to appoint a, a, a sensitive literary critic to do this kind of editing and, and textual refinement? No, they're going to report, they're going to appoint some hack. Um, and so that's always what the reality crisis boils down to is that if there is no such thing as absolute truth that we can refer to and argue about together, then it's just a question of power. It's just a question of who's in control. And that's not the world that I think, you know, you or I or, or really anybody wants to live in. So, you know, I, I would suggest to myself as much as to anybody else, you know, Seneca says I'm like a, a patient sitting in a hospital talking to the next hospital bed over, you know, in that spirit, what I would suggest is it's actually fine to pop off on Twitter. These are issues that merit our passionate engagement. We should care profoundly about them. But we should also have a practice of regular reflection about what's really driving our passions. It's not just whatever the cave, whatever shadow happens to flicker across the cave wall today. It's the fundamental issues that, that are driving these kinds of changes, which uh, we can observe and can pay attention to with a little bit of care and reflection. Building off, you mentioned digital technology a little bit a little bit earlier. Um, to what extent are the present uh, the are the present crises just a matter of technological progress? And then that building off that, you know, the in the 1800s, the Luddites lost. The machines were built and the factories were built and England went from a pastoral society to an urban society. Mm -hmm obviously the United States as well. Um, you know, so what, how concerned should we be that technology is going to make the crises worse or advance in the, in, in the hostile direction? Well, you know, this is something I talk about in the book, the fear of being a Luddite in the eyes of history. And it's kind of ever present when you make criticisms of technology or the way the technology is being used. Often the response you will get is, 
this is just more, as you're trying to hold back the tide, the toothpaste is already out of the tube. Um, and my proposition, because I don't think that we're going to unmake the digital revolution, and I don't think that we should. I actually think a lot of this tech provides real opportunities. I myself am a beneficiary of it by just by sitting here and talking to you. I mean, my whole career is, is built on some of this tech. And so far be it from me to declare it a work of the devil. Uh, what I do think is that many of the offer, offerings that get presented as inevitabilities are actually sales pitches. And this is how I account, for instance, for the transition from Facebook to Meta, you know, which opens the book and kind of frames this whole reality crisis as, you know, they're, they're offering us this kind of basically digital cave to upload ourselves into. Um, it's not that I have any objection actually to, uh, you know, more advanced communications technology. What I object to is the sales pitch that if I don't personally want to live in a world where the distinction between true and false is blurred, then I'm just resisting the, the natural inevitable onrush of history. Um, I think it's Shoshana Zuboff, who's a, a tech critic. She talks about inevitabilism. And I think that's what really you want to avoid when you have these sorts of conversations. There's, there's nothing written in the stars about our use of technology. There, are, there may be powerful forces at work in one direction or another, and some of this tech may have a kind of logic of its own. But ultimately, and this goes back to the kind of self-discipline thing I was talking about earlier, that's not a reason to throw up our hands and to speak, to say nothing on this. I mean, that, which, that whereof one, one cannot speak thereof, one must be silent. You know, that's, that's really kind of, I, I don't think that attitude is appropriate. And usually Usually when people encourage it, it's because they just want you to kind of shut up and, and buy their product. Well, and I, and I think it's actually interesting uh, that you rely in describing the reality crisis so much on the prospect of the metaverse. Mm. Thus far, it has not been a successful commercial endeavor. Right. Uh, and, you know, to the extent that it was supposed to maybe at the height of COVID, of, of COVID to truly replace uh, our human interaction, you know, I have 5 million revelers in the street in Buenos Aires mm -hmm. who shut down the World Cup parade to argue against that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it, is that a cause for optimism? <laughs> I, I should think so. I, yeah. I mean, I see a lot of cause for optimism in people's kind of uh, resilient common sense. And this is kind of in some ways, a, a good way of framing the whole conflict, because, yeah, the financial failure of the metaverse, at least so far as a business proposition, um, speaks to something which is also, I think, in evidence in sci-fi dystopias like The Matrix. And, you know, we, I've talked about a lot of them in the book, the Ready Player One, WALL-E, you know, you could list them off. It's very rare that you read a sci-fi uh, narrative about a totalizing virtual reality and everything just turns out okay. And I think what this indicates is people do actually have a an intuitive grasp of some of the basic facts here. Um, the danger to me is that we've been talked out of that intuitive grasp. We've been talked out of acting on and accepting that intuitive uh, that intuition that we that we have. You know, that, um, if you can't cite a study for it, if you can't make a kind of uh, uh, dry cut and dry argument for why it's bad to upload your consciousness to zoom um then you shouldn't talk about it at all and you should just accept the lockdown and the you know the replacement of of normal life with those sorts of interactions and i definitely find a lot of hope and optimism in the general 
uh, failure of that proposal to stick among just like mo most folks and not just people like me who kind of follow this stuff and uh, have certain pre-existing philosophical commitments. But there's a real, I think, uh, there's an ick factor among just everyday people, which um, is hopeful to me. In fact, it's my greatest source of, of hope. I just think that it needs to be kind of bolstered by uh, confirm. I mean, one reason why I wrote the book, let's say it this way, is to bolster that sense by showing that it's not totally unfounded and it has doesn't have no precedent it actually can be understood there are there are good intellectual reasons for your general supposition that's right that's right and you can uh, make use of them if you are willing to take a look at things that were written before 20 years ago because usually it re you know the the reliance on these kind of you know five seconds ago books from five seconds ago is the latest and greatest thing makes it seem as if everybody has always you know, looked in in one direction. But this is what C.S. Lewis says when he talks about letting the, the breeze of the centuries blow through our minds, that you can look at, take the long view and understand that actually a lot of these things that are presented as inevitable are actually highly anomalous. And it's not, you know, you're not crazy to, to react against them. Sarah, you had one other question. Um, I'm very interested in this uh, topic of optimism um, and whether or not uh, these are questions that um, we've had to answer before if these are, you know, which I know you deal with in the book based on what I've, I've heard of you or of your interviews. Um, and, and we've been talking about it here. So I guess what I want to ask you has to do with it's I'm going to get a little political here, which, mm. you know, um, I think we should um, not party political, but ideo ideologically political progressivism versus conservatism, that kind of thing. Um, I sometimes see conservatives adopt, and Mike and I were just talking about this earlier today, actually, um, sort of the rhetoric of people who I think would like to see the West fail us. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they you know, I, I saw AOC the other day, for example, talking about late stage capitalism. I see uh, conservatives who have become quite cynical and it's it's done in a joking way. I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but they'll say, you know, late stage republic, things like that. So <clears throat> I'm wondering if, uh, again, this has, I think, to do with this sort of dispersion of ideas uh, using technology if it's easier to kind of foster pessimism about some of these things, um, because it looks like everybody thinks in, in this case, the West has got problems and it's because of its excess freedom and that's why it's failing. And if that has been sold, even to the point that some people who wouldn't naturally gravitate toward those ideas are starting to pick up on the rhetoric. And do you think that's a bad thing? Do you think that's just something we can ignore? Is it something we should address? Yeah, uh, this question of pessimism versus optimism, I, I I am also riveted by it because a lot of times I talk to people who are more pessimistic than than I am, and I'm kind of an incurable optimist constitutionally. Uh, but the, what I've learned is it, it's actually not productive to try to talk anybody else out of his pessimism, and it's actually not productive for pessimists to try to talk me out of my optimism because both pessimism and optimism are predictions about the future. They have to do with what I think is going to happen tomorrow, a year from now, five years down the line. And my final answer to that question is, I don't know. I genuinely mean, I don't know. And that's like good news and bad news, because I don't know if something good's going to happen. And I don't know if something bad is going to happen. And so really, when we talk about 
is the West doomed? Is America doomed? We end up at loggerheads because we're just kind of casting our lots for various predictions about the future. And literally nobody knows the future. That's why it's called the future. So I prefer rather than, you know, bandying about uh, optimism versus pessimism and kind of who's taking bets on on what eventuality. I prefer to talk about hope and I prefer to talk about what job we have to do. Because if your pessimism leads to despair or if your optimism leads to complacency, then both of them are a kind of sin, a kind of moral failure. Um, the, the, any philosophy that cashes out in terms of you should just throw up your hands and do nothing is one that I find just fundamentally useless. What I believe is that this tradition we're talking about when we talk about the West is one which has survived centuries and generations worth of prosperity and decline. It's seen the rising and the falling of great nations. And that doesn't mean it doesn't matter what happens to America politically. It matters enormously. But whether you're a pessimist or an optimist, what's your job? Your job is to wake up every morning and seek the good, the true, and the beautiful. Seek the good of the city in which you find yourself and carry the flame forward. Marcus Cicero lived and worked at the end, the tail end of the Roman Republic. He retreated from public life in despair to write what he called a republic of letters, you know, to talk about this stuff in theory because he couldn't bring it about in practice. Um, in the short term, in the kind of pessimist optimist term, uh, Cicero was a failure. The new regime came, the republic ended, and Cicero was one of the first victims of the transition. Fast forward hundreds of years later and enter one John Adams, a little curmudgeon who has done nothing since his boyhood, but pour over the speeches of none other than Marcus Cicero and who stands up himself and gives the great speech in defense of our Declaration of Independence, sets this country on the road to its genesis. When you're dealing with a timescale of that nature, questions of pessimism and optimism sort of stop mattering quite so much. You know, we're in defense of a tradition uh, which belongs to God because it is a, a tradition of seeking truth. And and I really hope things go well. I sure do. Um, but whether they do or not, our job remains the same, and that's to carry the light. So uh, before we let you go, is there anything else that uh, that you're up to that you'd like to promote to our listeners? Oh, well, thanks for asking. I am on uh, Twitter at Spencer Clavin, which is just my name. And there you can find all sorts of things like my mailing list. And I'm also working on a new show at Daily Wire. So uh, Daily Wire Plus is the place to find that. All right. Well, thanks again to Spencer Clavin for joining us. The book is How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. 